it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Tuesday, June 14th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson, and this is the Guy Benson Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website, where our podcast is free on demand every day. GuyBensonShow.com. You can also follow us on social media, at GuyBensonShow, on Twitter and on Instagram. If you don't know me because you're perhaps new to the show, we are so happy that you are here. Extra glad that you're here. I'm the political editor at TownHall.com, a Fox News contributor and host of this program, three hours a day, three to six Eastern time. We, of course urge you to listen live. If not, there's that free podcast we told you about. Here's the lineup today. Congressman Tony Gonzalez coming up later this hour, Republican of Texas. He represents Uvalde. We'll get an update from him. Jessica Tarloff, our friend and colleague from the other side of the ideological spectrum. She will join us on a host of issues. And also in our final hour, U.S. Senator Dan Sullivan, Republican of Alaska. I want to ask him about energy Oil, the price of gasoline, these are issues that he focuses on a lot, and I'm looking forward to that conversation. As we come on the air today, a Fox News alert to bring you. The House of Representatives has now passed that Supreme Court security bill that was unanimously passed in the Senate. It was overwhelming. That came, in the Senate at least, amid the doxing and harassing of justices at their homes. So the Senate did what it did weeks ago. The House sat on it. And it took an assassination attempt against Justice Kavanaugh for Nancy Pelosi to deign to bring it up for a vote, and she finally did today. It passed overwhelmingly, 396 to 27, but still dozens of House Democrats, mostly squad types, left-wingers, but also a few kind of quote-unquote moderates were among the 27 votes, all Democrats, against this measure. Can you imagine? I'm sure they have their reasons. I'm sure they have their spin. We heard already from AOC that it was, oh, well, we're not protecting children from guns, so until we get our priorities straight, we're not going to vote for this thing for protecting Washington. That was her very garbled, muddled, confused thinking when she was on social media explaining her reservations about voting for it. And obviously she ended up voting no. But you have actively right now, like in the last few days, these agitators showing up at the houses of Supreme Court justices to harass them and harass their families. The justices have been docked, doxed by these agitators. Their addresses published online, that online address becoming available for people like the would-be assassin with his arsenal who showed up last week to try to kill Brett Kavanaugh at his house. And with that context in place, 
27 Democrats still decided that no, they were not going to vote for this measure. And I would love to hear some of the explanation from a number of them, because you've got names like AOC, Cory Bush, Rashida Tlaib, Ayanna Presley, not really surprising. But you have other people who at least present themselves as more middle of the road who joined this crew as well. But ultimately, it was a drop in the bucket overall. Again, it was 396 to 27, final passage of the bill out of the House. Meanwhile, President Biden was on the road today. He was in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, speaking to big labor, talking to the AFL-CIO, and he had a lot of things to say. And I want to play a few of those things for you. We have so many sound bites to get to of Biden and then also his press secretary. Corinne Jean-Pierre has been on a tear. From the White House podium, she also gave an interview on CNN. I mean, you just have to listen for yourself to some of these answers. But let's start with the man nominally in charge, the president of the United States. He did a lot of blaming Republicans, which could be interesting if Republicans controlled Congress, but they don't. I assume he remembers that. You never know. But he's talking about the Republicans like they're really the problem here in a city where they are out of power. Democrats wanted all the power. They got it. And here he is impotently raging against Republicans on a whole host of issues. Let's listen to cut 26, for example. Problem is, Republicans in Congress are doing everything they can to stop my plans to bring down costs on ordinary families. That's why my plan is not finished and why the results aren't finished either. Jobs are back, but prices are still too high. COVID is down. But gas prices are up. Our work isn't done. Republicans in Congress are doing everything they can to stop my plans to bring down costs. What would those plans be? I know they've got some window dressing, like, shiny object things that they've talked about. Price gouging bills that no one takes seriously. Even a bunch of Democratic economists are like, this is, this is nonsense. It's just partisan, meaningless Showboats. No, showboats and show votes, as a matter of fact. And he said, that's why my plan is not finished. Part of the problem here is a huge element of the unfinished plan is $5 trillion in additional new spending in an age of record inflation. Part of the unfinished agenda that he's complaining about and blaming Republicans for it. And by the way, it's not the Republicans. It's because he couldn't get the votes within his own party. They were going to try to pass it through reconciliation, was not going to require a single Republican vote. Every single Republican in the House voted no. Every single Republican in the Senate was going to vote no. And they couldn't get two of their Democrats to sign on to this insane inflationary binge. So it didn't pass. So blame the Republicans. What he should be doing is thanking Joe Manchin for saving the party from itself. Things would be even worse 
if there were not one or two sane Democrats who decided, let's just pump the brakes. So he's ignoring that. He's pretending like five trillion dollars would actually help in all this extra wasteful spending. And he's pretending that Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema are the Republicans. Then he talks about bipartisanship, but not with ultra MAGA. Cut 27. I believe in bipartisanship, but I have no illusions about this Republican Party, the MAGA Party. I've been able to bring some Republicans along on parts of my plan. But the fact is, Republicans in Congress are still in the grip of the ultra MAGA agenda. It's like take a shot every time he says ultra MAGA. That's the buzzword that they spent six months in focus groups and a lot of money dreaming up. That's going to be their salvation in the midterms, ultra MAGA. Not only are Republicans fundraising off of that, it also just doesn't make sense. You're telling me that the like John Boehner era Republicans back when Obama was president would have all been lining up to vote for $5 trillion in the middle of crazy inflation? And it's only because of MAGA and Trump that they've all lost their minds and they're still in the grip of whatever this thing is that they're talking about? No. They would have been not only no, but to quote John Boehner himself, hell no on this stuff back in 2009, 2010. Long before Donald Trump came down the escalator, Republicans would have said to a Democratic president, we're not spending $5 trillion on whatever crazy program, whatever insane plans you've got. That's actually an example of the Republican Party not changing pre and post Trump. It's not making the point that he thinks it is. Oh, and by the way, if you ask the American people right now, would you like Republicans to say no to the Biden agenda? Would you like Republicans to stop five trillion dollars of new spending in the middle of this biting inflation? Most Americans would say yes, please say no. They're about to elect Republicans into the majority, at least in the House, in order to say no. Biden is complaining about obstruction, even though his party controls everything right now and they can't get their own people on side for reconciliation votes that are designed to get around the Republicans in this case. But the American people are eager, if not desperate, for more obstruction. They want to send Republicans to Washington to put a check, to put a break on what this guy and his team has been trying to do. Now, he's trying to put the happy spin on all of this stuff, familiar talking points that are tendentious, specious or doubt, uh, downright dishonest, depending on which one you listen to. Here's one, for example, cut 28. Better paying jobs for better jobs for them and their families. It's been a long time since that's happened in this country, but it's happening now and it's working. Well, actually, no, wages are not going up. If you're talking about better paying jobs, wages, real wages because of inflation are down. They were down 3% last month in another painfully inflationary month with the numbers that we just got this week. So on paper, the wages are up. In reality, on purchasing power, wages are down. And he says it's been a long time since that happened. Really, it actually hasn't. It happened in 2018 and 2019 after the Republican tax reform, after the Republican deregulation, after the Republicans did a lot of really good things for the economy. The economy was in great 
shape. You remember 2019. The economy was in great shape. Even with President Trump being unpopular on almost everything, he got good marks on the economy because people could see what was happening on jobs and wages across the board. It was a humming, healthy, growing economy with wages really going up meaningfully, especially for middle class and working class people. The exact opposite of what the Democrats all warned about hysterically when they voted against the tax cuts and said it was Armageddon that was going to kill people. It did the opposite. It boosted the economy. And now Biden's trying to pretend like, oh, it's been forever since any of this good stuff happened. No, we all remember it. It was just before the pandemic, actually. And the stuff he's trying to take credit for now isn't even real. It's illusory. Because real wages are down, because of inflation, which has been fueled by his disastrous, reckless policies. He also said this. He got angry. This was angry Joe Biden shouting. Seems like he sometimes has two settings. He's either shouting like an old man at a cloud or whispering creepily. So this wasn't the whisper. This was the shouting where he's sick and tired of people noticing what's happening in this country and calling him out and calling out all the Democratic policies and the spending. Just listen to Cut 25. I don't want to hear any more of these lies about reckless spending. We're changing people's lives. Oh, they're changing people's lives all right. Have you noticed how your life has changed under this president? They're changing people's lives. Just not the way that I think he means. I don't want to hear any more of these lies about reckless spending. Whose reckless lies are those? Larry Summers, former Democratic Treasury Secretary. Steve Ratner, top economic advisor to President Obama. Are those part of the lying contingent who have said all of this reckless spending is fueling inflation? That's crushing Americans. Are they part of the lying brigade here or what? I don't want to hear any more of the lies about reckless spending. He said, we're changing people's lives. What a soundbite. It's like the Democratic slogan for 2022. Shut the hell up, you ignorant ingrates, and be thankful. That's what that sounds like to me. You know, we keep talking about, and I saw a story earlier today that the Democrats are all going to huddle together. The White House and the Democrats in Congress are all going to come together and they're going to discuss messaging on the economy. As we've said over and over, and as we will continue to say over and over, they don't have a messaging problem, although they have that too, especially when you start hearing from the White House press secretary here coming up in the next few segments. But it's not so much a messaging problem as it is a reality problem, a results problem, an outcome problem. So no big meeting of the minds, these bright lights in the Democratic Party. The tweaking of the way they talk is not going to change what people are experiencing. That's problem number one. Problem number two, based on what we're hearing here from President Biden and what you're going to hear momentarily from his press secretary, it sounds like they're also not making a messaging pivot. It's just failure and doubling down on it proudly. That's the plan. 
And if that's what 2022 is about, if that's what November is about, if that's in a referendum for the voters on this mentality, boy, it could be worse from the Democrats than we even think. More sound bites. You got to hear some of this stuff from the White House press secretary and more. All coming up after this, it's the Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. The Guy Benson Show. More next. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Under my plan for the economy, we made extraordinary progress. And put America in a position to tackle a worldwide problem is worse everywhere but here. Inflation. I'm Guy Benson. That was President Biden. Extraordinary progress. Look at the triumphant tone of this guy. It's amazing. His approval rating on the economy is in the 30s. His disapproval is in the 60s. His disapproval on inflation is 70%. And he's bragging to the AFL-CIO about all the extraordinary success he's made. And he says, and they're battling, quote, a worldwide problem that is worse everywhere but here on inflation. Is that true? Let's do a quick fact check. And it's false. Even if it were true, it reminds me when I was in college, they would raise our tuition every year at Northwestern. And they would send us a memo or an email saying, yep, tuition's going up to this, but... Here's a short list of other colleges that will be even more expensive. It's like that didn't make me feel better. It's like, okay, yeah, the the number is going up here, but it's not as bad as over there. That doesn't really help someone who's struggling to pay a bill. Oh, it's worse somewhere else. But in this case, it's also wrong. Financial Times has a landing page on their website where you can go buy developed country and look at their inflation rate versus the global inflation rate, and America's is higher than the global inflation rate. They've got a whole graph on it. And then they have a couple of the most advanced countries in the world, the U.S., the U.K., Germany, France, and Japan. The U.S. and U.K. are basically tied at the very top. Then Germany, where inflation is less pronounced, a big drop-off down to France, a bigger drop-off to Japan. Everyone's facing inflation, but it's not worse everywhere else but the United States. It is worse here than many other places and most other places in the advanced developed world. So even the talking point he's trying to use is false. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Back on the Guy Benson Show, GuyBensonShow.com, our website, podcast free every day. Well, Joe Biden is not hitting us with his best shot because he can't. He doesn't really have that fastball anymore, if he ever really had it. 
So he's not his own best advocate. So perhaps his White House press secretary needs to fill that role. Step into those shoes. Circle back. Headed off a few weeks ago. She's now one of our competitors here on the cable news space. And her replacement is Corrine Jean-Pierre, who again seems perfectly nice. They will tell us that she is historically diverse in a number of ways, and I guess that's true. Sounds good. Glad for her. She said some pretty wild things in the past, including some election denial, which we are told is extremely bad and dangerous, except when Democrats do it that gets you hired as the White House press secretary and nominated in Georgia as the gubernatorial nominee. But let's just set all the past aside and just focus on the work that she's doing at that podium, in that briefing room. And she had a rough first day. However many weeks ago that was, we played some of the sound, and I said, look, it's early. It was her first day. I know she had done briefings as the deputy many times, but still maybe some nerves. I'm beginning to suspect that maybe she just isn't very good at this job. And that's not a personal attack. It is my assessment of her work product. Maybe she'll improve. Maybe she'll have better days ahead. But let's start with her response to this not terribly unsurprising question from a very friendly source, Don Lemon at CNN, about the buzz surrounding Joe Biden, whether he'll be able to run again in 24, whether the party wants him to, whether he's really up for it, let's say. And this was the reply in Cut 22. Does the president have the stamina, physically and mentally, do you think, to continue on even after 2024? Don, you're asking me this question. Oh, my gosh. He's the president of the United States. You know, it, he I can't even keep up with it. We just got back from New Mexico. We just got back um, from California. Uh, that is I, 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 that is not a question that we should be even asking. Just look at the work that he does. Look what he's how he's delivering uh, for the American public. Yeah, we are looking at how he's delivering for the American public. That's the problem, Kareen. As he would say, do we have the drop? We're changing people's lives. Yeah, yes, Mr. President. We're changing people's lives. Problem is people don't like the change. It's change they don't want to believe in and can't. And I love sort of the fake umbrage at the question there from Jean-Pierre. You're asking me this question? Oh, my gosh, Don. He's president of the United States. Yes, we know. That's not a rebuttal. That's not a response. You know, I can't even keep up with him, she says. There's a word I want to use that starts with a B. We don't believe you. Everyone can keep up with Joe Biden. Everyone can keep up with Joe Biden. We just got back from New Mexico. We just got back from California. Okay. And? Like, he did travel different places, and now he's back. I don't know what relevance that has to his physical and mental stamina. Aside from he's not bedridden, right? He's not a recluse at the White House. He's able to fly on an airplane, and get shuttled around from place to place. 
you know, in, in motorcades? That's not even a question that we should be asking. Well, I have bad news for you, for Corrine. Not only are we asking it, a lot of people in your own party are asking the question. That's the whole basis of the New York Times story that came out, what, a day or two ago. It's not a handful of people whispering. It's growing to a low roar of Democrats asking if the president will be capable of running in 2024 and continuing on as president beyond that. And by the way, the question came from Don Lemon. He's not exactly uh, a hostile interview. He might be a little bit more journalistic than Jimmy Kimmel, but I don't know. What an answer. It was just a bunch of deflection taking fake offense and just sort of like weird stream of conscious word vomit. Concluding with, look at how he's delivering for the American public, which is not exactly the strong response that she evidently thinks it is. Then she was asked yesterday at the podium about the baby formula shortage. And she looked like a deer in the headlights for a while, and she went straight to the binder. All right, where's this binder? All right, baby formula B. Let's get to that tab. And... We edited the following clip that you're about to hear, not her response. We did not draw it out. We didn't extend the pauses or the awkward mumbling. We just added a little bit of a soundtrack in the background. This was her effort on the baby formula shortage issue in Cut 20. What is the White House... What is the latest update the White House has received on the current and formula situation across the country? Yeah, let me see if I have anything new for you on that. Uh, I think it's been a couple of days since we have asked, been asked that question. Okay. I don't have anything new. I know we made some announcements last week. Uh, I, don't, I just don't have them in front of me. Good. Good. That's some good stuff. That's some excellent press secretarying right there. Then how about this exchange with our Peter Ducey in the briefing room yesterday on the economy, the stock market and beyond in Cut 21? President Biden once bragged about the stock market hitting record after record after record on my watch. How about now? Meaning the stock market. All the gains from President Biden's time in office have been wiped out. So, as you know, we're watching, we're watching closely. Uh, we know families are concerned about inflation in the stock market. Uh, that is something that the president is, is really aware of. And so, look, we face global challenges. We've talked about this. Uh, this is, we're not the only country dealing uh, with what we're seeing at the moment as it relates to inflation. You know, Putin, Putin's price hike, inflation uh, coming, coming out of a once-in-a-generation uh, global pandemic, all, all of those things play a factor. And, uh, and, you know, but the thing, the way that we see this is that the American people are well positioned uh, to face these challenges because of the economic historic uh, gains that we have made uh, under this president. Amazing. First on the stock market, quote, we're watching closely. Just a few weeks ago, she said they don't look at the stock market every day. 
Now they're watching closely. President's super aware of that. Then we get Putin, 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 obviously. And then, quote, the American people are well positioned to face these challenges because of the historic gains that we have made under this president. I hope Democrats run on that. I hope they run on that. The historic gains, which is why Americans are well positioned to weather the storm on inflation or to put it more succinctly by the president in the drop from today in Philadelphia. Listen, we're changing people's lives. Yep. You like those changes? Yes or no? Go out and vote. Let's see what happens. The Guy Benson Show continues after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back on the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you all aboard. 3 to 6 Eastern every weekday. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast always free. With us now is Congressman Tony Gonzalez, a Republican from Texas, the 23rd district down there. And his district includes the city of Uvalde, which was just torn apart by that horrific school shooting a number of weeks ago last month. And, Congressman, it's good to have you back on the show. Thanks for being here. Yeah, no, always think, always good to be on. Thanks, thanks, Guy. I'm not saying that the country has moved on from Uvalde. We haven't. It is still very much a top-of-mind issue. I know there's some policy ideas being floated now that I'll get to in a moment. But I think that it has to be the case that on the ground in that community, the shock at some point starts to wear off and some other kind of grieving begins. What are you hearing? What are you seeing in Uvalde? Yeah, no, I literally talked to uh, a father of one of the uh, victims about two hours ago, and I and I speak to the I speak with uh, people on the ground every single day, and and you know he's just trying he's asking me you know everyday questions of how to keep going you know uh, the other day this was about social a social security issue, uh, but the other day you know an, another father actually reaches out as well, and he goes hey Tony I'm I'm staying in a hotel. It's, this was Tuesday, and, uh, you know, I only have enough money to stay here till Saturday. I can't work. I can't do these things. I, I say that to go, yes, the, maybe the rest of the country may have moved on and, and is taught, and using this moment to have a political debate. I, I get all that. But in my district, in the Uvalde, and it's not only Uvalde, it's the entire region, because Uvalde is really the big city, the big town in that whole area. There's, you know, uh, nine counties around it that feed into it. We, we're just trying to pick up the pieces and get our lives back together. And it's going to be this way for a while. A, a large part of that, too, is, is mental health. I mean, a lot of people are in very bad spots. So I, I'm regularly checking in with my folks to make sure everyone's okay. I do want to ask you about the sentiment there when it comes to some of the law enforcement officials who responded that day. And from a distance, reading some of these accounts in the local press and the national press about what did not happen, how long the delays were, the excuses for those delays, uh, some of which have been disproven or exposed as false, and some of the misinformation and the changing story that was presented to the public over the course of days, it's extremely angering for someone like me. I'm wondering how people there are processing that. I mean, I don't want to necessarily scapegoat any one person. I think there were a lot of failures. But this district police chief who was in charge and 
made the call not to go in for the better part of an hour. He still has that position. He just got sworn in as a local official because he had won an election a few months ago. How is that sustainable? I would imagine there are a lot of people demanding answers, accountability, consequences. You know what? The, the, the media, and I'll just use that as a broad term, has largely demonized many of these first responders. Uh, and and I, I'll tell you, it's the furthest thing from the truth. That, were there a lot of mistakes made? 100%. Do we need to know exactly what those mistakes were? Yes. And we need to learn from them, and we need to make sure that, that we, we correct those, those errors to make sure that our response time is, is, is much different than what it was. But I, I'll tell you, I mean, one, the gunman was, was init- initially engaged by Lieutenant Javier Pena three minutes after he entered the school. You know, sadly, that's three minutes too late. He had, he had already killed many innocent people by that point. And I'll also say what, what people don't realize is a lot, of those, a lot of those folks that were in that hallway wanted to get in that room as quickly as possible. It was a steel door. There were two steel doors. They were locked. They didn't have the tool to either pry it open like a can or open the door. And, and, and their own children were, in, in some cases, their own children were in that room. So, you know, one gentleman in particular is trying to find the keys to it. He goes through over 30 different keys. Guess what? I mean, this is part of what took so long. His own child was in that room. So to kind of make it seem as if they were just standing outside of the the room because they were afraid to go in, it's the furthest thing from the truth. Or people were – it was their cousin or it was their neighbor. I mean everyone knows everyone in this town. And and so it's it's just not – it's just not fair, man. It's just not uh, it's just not accurate that they would allow. Uh, I, they wanted to get in that room as quickly as they possibly could, and when they did, they neutralized the the police officer. I mean, they neutralized the killer. And a lot of these police officers, after they go through this entire ordeal, some of them are even wounded. There were all these copycat threats that day, as well as the the, the coming days. So one of you know one of the Javier Pena, I go again, man. Javier, he 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 gets wounded. He actually gets shot and uh, gets grazed in the head, and he he breaches, neutralizes things, tries to help save some kids going in there, and then afterwards he goes to the high school and he is patrolling the high school. The next day he is, I mean, he, the guy hadn't stopped working. I mean, these are the stories that aren't making it out there. Some of the border patrol agents went to elementary schools. Some of the, the, you know, the, the game warning went to other places. So this is our community. After all the lights, all the action leaves, we're, we're trying to pick up the pieces. Many of us, uh, we're not looking for blame. We're, we're, not, we're not looking for any of that. We're looking to go, how do we heal and how do we, honestly, how do we get ready for school in 60 days? Yeah, well, I mean, we've also heard from a lot of parents in the media who, from Uvalde, who are angry. I think it's a fair point to say you know, a lot of these officers did everything that they could and wanted to go in. There were also decisions that were made, at least uh, from my perspective, Congressman, that are just totally inexcusable. And, and we've gone through some of them here on the show. In Washington, meanwhile, there's this big discussion about this package in the Senate that involves some provisions related to guns, some spending on mental health, securing schools, uh, closing a couple loopholes that have nothing to do with guns. And then red flag law funding, there are various elements of what is being discussed. Ten Republicans and ten Democrats have signed on. I saw Senator McConnell today saying that he would be a yes on this if the legislative text 
matches what the framework looks like. We don't have the legislative text yet. So I think that's going to be very important because sometimes the devil is in the details on this stuff. But based on what you know so far, what is your impression of this would-be legislation overall? Yeah, first off, it's not a gun control package. It is a mental health package. You're going to see that this this bill is going to have is going to invest more in mental health than at any other point in our nation's history. So when we always talk about getting to the root of it, getting preventive instead of reacting reactionary, that's what it's going to do. I think a large part of this bill is going to be de- devoted to mental health, mental health clinics, especially in rural America that they don't have the resources. You're going to see additional resources towards telemedicine. This is what you're not going to see in there. This is what's not in there. There are no hardware bans. That's key. There's no age restriction. That's key. There's no universal background checks. That's key. I mean, they really, there's no magazine bans. I mean, this isn't a gun bill, uh, Benson. Look, the red, the, the, the red flag grants are going to be in there. I don't agree with red flag laws. I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I live in Texas. And I, I hope, you know, no one takes these red flag uh, grants. But they, they also they aren't mandatory. They not, there aren't federally mandated federal uh, red right. flag laws. And, and it, so, so I'm just very quickly because we only have a few seconds left. It sounds like you are positively disposed towards this and inclined at least to to think about voting yes. Look, I, I'm a yes, but I'm with everyone else. I mean, you got to make sure you got to see this thing all the way through, and you got to see right the, the devils in the details, the specifics, yeah, and the we can talk about red flag laws. I think it depends from state to state. You can craft them well or badly. That's a point well taken as well. Congressman Tony Gonzalez of Texas 23. Thank you, sir. We'll be right back. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A new hour is here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for tuning in between 3 and 6 Eastern every weekday. GuyBensonShow.com is our website, the podcast is free every day on demand. GuyBensonShow.com, at GuyBensonShow on Twitter and on Instagram. Fox News alert. The Dow off again today, closing in the red, down 151 points to 30,364. This coming on the heels of a brutal day yesterday, all tied into the inflation number that we got Late last week, and we continue to get worse news on this front. We know CPI, the expectation was for it to be flat, still extremely elevated and painful, 8.3% increase year over year. The real number ended up being 8.6%. And we went through the various commodities and areas where prices have just exploded. Mr. President? We're changing people's lives. Yeah. Meanwhile, gas is at its highest level ever, gas prices, like more than 510 a gallon. That was yesterday. Did it go up again today? Probably. Well over $5 a gallon on average in the United States of America. $5 a gallon on average. I saw that someone did an analysis of what it would cost to fill up the tank of the most popular pickup truck in America which is, I believe, a Ford. 
Might be the Ford F-150. Don't quote me on that. But not long ago, it cost $80 to fill up. It is currently around $130 to fill up. I mean, this is just an astounding, bruising fact of life for Americans all across the country. And it's going to get worse. All the experts say over the course of the summer, July, August, it's going to get worse. Inflation is going to be sticking around for a long period of time on multiple fronts. But gas prices are going to continue to go up before they at some point get better. More than five dollars a gallon for gas in the United States of America amid this inflation. Mr. President, we're changing people's lives. Here's another one from Market Watch. This was today. Wholesale prices jump again, signaling still intense inflation in U.S. economy. The increase in wholesale prices over the last 12 months dipped to 10.8% from 10.9%. So basically flat in wholesale prices. Just a year and a half ago, when you-know-who was still president, prices were rising at less than a 2% pace. Less than 2% was a year and a half ago. 10.8% on this metric is where we are now. So-called core wholesale prices, which omit food and energy, which, by the way, families can't do. I know this is something that economists look at, and it does matter in terms of trajectories and that sort of thing. Families can't just say, oh, well, if you take out food and energy costs, then inflation is really X. What people feel the most in many cases is fuel and food. Still, though, so-called core wholesale prices omitting food and energy rose 0.5% in May. Wall Street had expected exactly that. So right on target for a bad, ugly, painful expectation. High wholesale inflation. This is from the Wall Street Journal, Market Watch. High wholesale inflation suggests little relief anytime soon for consumers. When companies have to pay more to operate their businesses, they usually pass the price increases on to consumers. By the way, little little fact, let me do a Biden whisper. That's also true of taxes. It's just economic reality. But, quote, high Wholesale inflation suggests little relief anytime soon for consumers. Mr. President, we're changing people's lives. I think that that speech today, the tone of it, the substance of it was a big mistake. And he's saying, incidentally, that the plans that he has been able to enact— And thank goodness some of them were killed in the Senate. But what he was able to do was the right thing to do and not to blame, not at fault. Corrine Jean-Pierre, we had a little bit of fun at her expense in the last hour. Although, honestly, it's just telling the truth about her job performance. I just don't think she's been a good press secretary so far. She's still out there, as is Biden, sort of thumping their chests about the historic progress, historic gains is what she said yesterday. Historic gains. And Biden saying very similar things. 
extraordinary progress. Kind of reminds me, because you're talking about the economy. It's like when he called the Afghanistan withdrawal an extraordinary success. Same thing. Everyone can see with our eyes what's happening. We're feeling it every day in our wallets, pocketbooks. In that case, you saw people falling off of airplanes, clinging to the landing gear. You saw an explosion that killed 13 American soldiers as the Taliban was completely in control of Kabul and we had ceded security, quote unquote, to them. You see thousands of Americans left behind. Absolute chaos in the streets, terror in the faces of women and girls. Billions of dollars of U.S. military equipment falling into the hands of terrorists. And this guy shows up on TV and says, extraordinary success. Here we have 40-year highs on inflation. Brand new record-smashing highs on gas prices. And he gives a big speech to his uh, union allies talking about all the extraordinary progress we've made and how the American people are uniquely positioned to weather this because of all the historic gains his press secretary talks about. Because, after all, as they say, inflation in America is less bad than it is everywhere else, which is absolutely not true. Our inflation problem is worse here than many other places in the developed world. I guess when these are the outcomes, when these are the results that you're presiding over as a result of your quote-unquote leadership, you have to make things up. You have to spin. You have to lie. Because what else do you have? Here's an example. Cut 23. This was Corrine Jean-Pierre. I'm running through these numbers. And Corrine Jean-Pierre is asked about these numbers on CNN. And here's what she says in Cut 23. The American Rescue Plan met the moment, and it has put us in a place where we can actually uh, uh, put us in a place where the American people feel can, can, can actually we can take on inflation. What I mean by that is we've, see, we've seen growth, right, with, eight, as I mentioned, more than 8 million jobs. And now we're transitioning into a steady, a stable growth. The president actually wrote an op-ed to discuss that himself, talk, lay out his plan on how we're going to bring down inflation. And so that's really important. In order uh, to take this on, we got to have some uh, be in a good historic economic place, which is where we are right now. We have to be. Let me see if I'm understanding this. In order to take this on, meaning inflation, we have to be in a good historic economic place, which is where we are right now. That's the official word from the White House. That we're in a historic good place. They said this also last week. They're sticking with this. They are sticking with this line. Now, look, are there elements of the overall picture that are good? Yes. Right. I'm not going to sit here and lie to you like certain others will in the other direction. They go, everything is the worst ever. No, there are bright spots in the economy. But the bright spots are the silver lining on the dark cloud that is inflation and gas prices. And as Americans are deeply dissatisfied, 
Two-thirds of Americans living paycheck to paycheck, digging into their savings just to survive. To tell them that there's been just extraordinary progress and just amazing things, big things under this president. Historic gains. And now we're in a good historic economic place. That is such a disconnect with where real people actually are. They're not going to change their policies. They're not going to change their messaging in any significant way. They're doubling down. It's actually pretty amazing to see. She says the American Rescue Plan, which was the nearly $2 trillion of spending that they did with zero Republican votes at the beginning of the Biden administration, they'd already spent collectively in Washington, setting aside the Fed action, just the actual outlays, federal spending, bipartisan, under President Trump, trillions they spent on the emergency of COVID. Now, a lot of that turned out to be wasteful and went to grifters and was stolen. But a lot of that money was really needed. You were in the middle of a huge emergency where we had to shut down our economy, I think, for too long over this, at least initially, unknown virus that was killing a lot of people. I wish we were in a better fiscal position to take on that kind of emergency-related debt, but here we are. Both parties got us there, got us to this place. Then Biden takes over. He spends $2 trillion, a lot of which was hugely wasteful, evidenced by the fact that they're now, again, still saying, oh, we're out of money. We're out of money on testing, therapeutics, vaccines. We're out of money. How is that possible? Washington spent $6 trillion in two years on this emergency. They're out of funding for the most basic stuff, it's because they spent it on a bunch of garbage and called it COVID relief. So they added $2 trillion more to the inflation conflagration, the fire that was already burning. They wanted to add, as I always point out, $5 trillion more, and like two people in the Senate stopped them. Thank goodness, and they're blaming Republicans for that. I'm glad every Republican helped stop that. And here's the press secretary at the White House saying that that $2 trillion, $1.9 trillion in spending, quote, met the moment, which is one of the most trite, exhausting cliches in Washington, D.C. It's become very popular in the last year or so, maybe two years. Oh, it needs to meet the moment, probably going back to 2020. That's when people really love that buzz phrase. So here she comes on CNN. Oh, the American Rescue Plan met the moment, did it? Because you ran out of money on the actual important COVID stuff. And you've got Democratic economists like Steve Ratner calling that spending, that waste, that inflation-fueling spending spree a mistake of historic proportions when it comes to inflation. Met the moment, says the White House. She actually credits... The $2 trillion of spending as something that, quote, put us in a place where you can actually put us in a place. I'm, re- I'm just reading her verbatim words. This is not me being inarticulate. It has put us in a place where we can actually put us in a place where the American people feel can, can, can actually we can take on inflation. Oh, so the trillions of wasteful spending called a historic mistake by Democratic economists is actually the thing that's going to empower 
the Biden administration to take on inflation. Sure, Jan. I mean, does anyone believe that? Honestly, does anyone believe that's true? Certainly not the former Treasury Secretary, Larry Summers, under President Obama, a committed Democrat and liberal. KJP, the press secretary, says that this economy is bouncing back. That was something else she said on CNN. The economy is bouncing back. We believe we're in a good position to take on inflation. Well, Larry Summers, as for the bounce back, don't forget on that same network, CNN, over the weekend, what did he say? Cut three. Secretary Yellen said this week that, quote, there is nothing to suggest a recession is in the works. Do you agree with that? No, I don't. When inflation is as high as it is right now and unemployment is as low as it is right now, it's almost always been followed within two years by inflation, by by recession. He went on to say that it's more likely than not in the next two years we're going to get a recession. From that hard landing, because here's Axios today, the Federal Reserve could respond to the surge in inflation with its steepest interest increase, interest rate increase since 1994. At its policy meeting, Central Bank, Central Bank said it may opt to raise rates by 0.75 percentage points. Setting a lot of new records and going way back in the history books when it comes to the pain and the problems. But hey, Mr. President, we're changing people's lives. Yeah, they sure are. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Guy Benson will be right back. I'm Guy Benson. And on the live broadcast, if you're listening, I'm enjoying the latest from Harry Styles. Just the, the horns on this new song, so good. Actually, like the actual lyrics and singing, not really not much. It doesn't do much for me, but the it's not even the chorus, but it, it feels like the chorus because the featured part of the song is the horns. What's the song called? So, music for a sushi restaurant, something like that. It is catchy. Well, now I've distracted myself as we're back, back here on the show. I did want to briefly mention that it is primary night again, these rolling primaries. A couple interesting things to keep an eye on this evening, including out in Nevada. There's a big story in the New York Times yesterday about the possibility of a red wave really crashing in landlocked Nevada, where Republicans have a very good chance at, if not sweeping some of these races, doing very well. So there's been a hard-fought primary on the Senate side. I know this guy, Laxalt, has been the front-runner, Adam Laxalt, but he's got a veteran, a, a wounded warrior he's battling with. It's been, you know, two, two impressive guys trying to take on the incumbent, Cortez Masto, who I think is in some pretty serious trouble. She might be the most vulnerable Democrat in the Senate. That is one to keep an eye on. Also, it looks like the Nevada Democrats have gerrymandered themselves into real trouble. They controlled the map. They gerrymandered it in a way that might allow the Republicans to gain most, if not all, of the congressional seats in that state if things go a certain way and if the night breaks bad for the Democratic Party. So that's out west. Out east, 
I'm going to be watching South Carolina, the first congressional district, Nancy Mace, who's been a guest on this show multiple times. Donald Trump's been all in to try to beat her in the primary, try to unseat her. And we'll see if he succeeds with his handpicked endorsed candidate. Mace is sounding optimistic that she's going to win that primary. We'll find out tonight and we'll talk about it tomorrow. Guy Benson Show. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We are halfway through today's show here on the Guy Benson Show. Thanks very much for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast free every day. You can also follow us on social at Guy Benson Show. Twitter and Instagram. With us now is Jessica Tarloff, Fox News contributor, co-host of The Five, head of research at Bustle, and our chief romance and baby correspondent here at the program. Jesse, welcome back. Thank you so much. I want to start with the baby formula shortage, which, of course, is affecting you as a mother, and you're all over this as our chief baby correspondent. Yesterday at the White House, Karine Jean-Pierre, the press secretary for President Biden, was asked about this, and she had some trouble uh, with the question. She was flipping through the binder at length to try to find an answer to the question. We did a little bit of editing to this, not on her end, but you'll understand. Cut 20. What is the White House, what is the latest update the White House has received on the current formula situation across the country? Yeah, let me see if I have anything new for you on that. Uh, I think it's been a couple of days since we have asked, been asked that question. I don't have anything new. I know we made some announcements last week. Uh, I, don't, I just don't have them in front of me. So the question for you, Jesse, is do you have any updates or announcements for us? Because the White House apparently does not. Um, the update is it's still a problem. Uh, so I know that <laughs> hospitals and doctor's offices have gotten uh, the bulk of what's coming through Operation Fly Formula, I think is the name of it. Um, but it'll still be a few more weeks until the production um, from the plant that was shut down is back to normal levels. And then they predict a few more weeks after that until the shelves look like they used to. Um, but it's uh, it's still a big drama. And I feel like people have kind of gotten sick of talking about it. Because, you know, when something isn't moving, right, necessarily, it becomes a little... Uh, old like old new like if you have nothing new to say then people don't want to talk about it um but certainly in mom groups and things like that it's still a very active uh active issue yeah and that's why i'm bringing it up i've seen social media posts from women from young mothers who are just filming themselves driving from store to store trying to find this stuff and as long as it's still going on we understand the causes of it at this point and we hope that we understand the timeline where we're weeks or even months away from things getting back to normal. I think there are people who feel like, OK, we've checked the box of talking about it. And the White House has given a few statements from the podium. And now let's just you know, let this thing run its course. That's not helping people who are trying to feed their kids right now. And I guess the question on a policy level, Jesse, is once this is resolved, because it should be at some point here this summer, and you'll have the Abbott plant back online and they'll ramp production back up and hopefully things will get back to somewhat normal. Do you think that we might be able to learn some lessons about the seemingly very excessive 
rules and regulations around this product because it just doesn't make sense to me that we're flying in baby formula from overseas that is clearly perfectly safe for Australian babies, German babies, British babies, but has been illegal to sell in this country. As soon as we have a problem in this country, we see what the result is. Maybe we can learn from that and maybe deregulate or at least change or streamline some of these regulations to make more sense so we don't go through this again? Yeah, absolutely. And I would add to uh, your apt description of what's going on, the fact that the European formula is actually healthier than American formula. It's more organic. It uses uh, less bad ingredients like vegetable oil. Um, So there are a lot of parents who are very pleased, um, frankly, to be using formula that they didn't have access to before. Um, So I think that it will um, really change the marketplace. I mean, there were four companies that were responsible for 99% of the baby formula um, that was in American households, and that is going to be absolutely destroyed by this. Um, And hopefully the policy changes uh, will be swift because moms are not going to stand for another round of this, that's for sure. I would like to see some more choice and competition. I would like to see less government regulation. I've seen some people idiotically trying to lay this whole crisis at the feet of capitalism when in fact i would say precisely the opposite the government created the problem consolidation and government rules set the stage for this problem and capitalism is what's going to prevent it from happening in the future that is my pro-capitalism take that i also think is just backed up by the facts here jesse i want to talk about elections starting with the most forthcoming elections the midterms and then looking ahead Two years beyond that. Have you seen the Axios story this week about Democrats meddling in Republican primaries in a number of races all across the country, governor races, Senate races, House races, where they are? And we've seen this in the past, and they've had some success, the Democrats have, in trying to manipulate Republican voters into nominating crazy people or unelectable people who then go on to lose in a general You know, you think of the Todd Akin effect where Claire McCaskill basically handpicked her opponent by meddling in that primary and spending a lot of money to boost Todd Akin. And there's a whole bunch of others over the course of recent history. Axios reporting that Democrats are doing that again. And in this case, what they're doing is boosting sort of conspiracy theorists, QAnon people, election deniers. And I just wonder what you think of that, because – to me, there's something of a be careful what you wish for lesson here, because this is almost what the Dems did with Donald Trump in 2016. Then they got him as the nominee for the Republicans. They were convinced they were going to beat him. Then they didn't. And the next four years was like hell on earth for Democrats. And I just think if you work to put a crank as the nominee of a major party in a race, there's a decent chance, especially in an environment like this, that that person might actually gain power I just think I I understand the politics behind it, but it seems ultra cynical and actually maybe counterproductive and dangerous considering what a red year this is shaping up to be. So I take your point certainly about Trump and everyone basically thought it would be a cakewalk. And then obviously our cake ended up crying for for four years uh, when he ended up winning. But uh, I don't know if I would call it meddling. Um, I 
think this is something that goes on and obviously goes on on both sides. Um, and there are degrees to which I think that this is either a good or a bad idea. Like Doug Mastriano, who's the GOP nominee for governor in Pennsylvania, he just hired Jenna Ellis, one of Trump's um, election denying lawyers uh, for his team. He's a QAnon fellow, um, very into the big lie. Um, I think that that is who we would like to run against in a state like Pennsylvania, which um, Biden obviously won last time, but is one of the most prominent swing states and with a lot of electoral votes for us. And Josh Shapiro, we have a very strong candidate um, running there on the Democratic side. I think it's on the smaller levels, like on congressional races, where this can really go, you know, in any direction. Like, People thought Marjorie Taylor Greene was totally, well, she is totally out of her mind, but they thought she could never be elected, the Lauren Boberts of the world, et cetera. And it turns out that there is a constituency, A, for the types of things that they're espousing, but B, party ID and partisan affiliation is just such a powerful predictor of how people are going to vote that I think often is taken for granted the idea that someone would switch parties just because they have X person running in their district. Um, so I think that there is a danger in that scenario. Yeah, I mean, definitely, because if you're someone who's frustrated with this president, this White House, the ruling party, and that's most Americans, what two thirds of Americans say that we're on the wrong track, Democrats control all of Washington, D.C., a lot of those folks are just going to show up in November, pull the lever for every name that has an R next to it that they can find, just as sort of a, a symbol of backlash and saying we're not happy, and then go home and see what happens on TV later that night, they're not necessarily going to be super focused on every belief of all these Republicans on the ballot. I'm just saying if you're a Democrat and you spend a lot of time decrying election trutherism or election denial or conspiracy theories on the right, setting aside some of the stuff that happens on the left, if that's something that you think is a threat to democracy, right, democracy under attack, is it then hypocritical and irresponsible to then boost people that actually explicitly espouse some of that stuff just because you think they'll be easier to beat. I guess that's my point. Oh, I like that point. Okay. I agree with you about that because, I mean, we should just be pushing out these people, whatever direction they're coming into, you know, that they're coming into the fore. Okay. So, yeah, I would agree with that. Um, but obviously politicians are going to try to win elections, right? Um, yeah, it's part of the game. And it's very hard to run a race against someone that's like super normal and that you might actually vote for yourself. It's a lot easier to be able to tie someone to Trumpism, first of all, right? That's the number one way um, that you're going to be able to motivate a Democratic base and maybe, a, you know, a good amount of moderate Republicans in your favor. So, yeah, but I, I, know, I, I get it. your point completely. And, and I get your point, too. It's politics. It is, to some extent, gamesmanship. But then the question is, at what point are you playing a foolish or even dangerous game for what you perceive to be a short-term victory that might not actually turn out to be a victory? And then if that's the case, then it's sort of like a big oops because look at what you have helped to bring about. I'll just leave it there for now. Meanwhile, Jesse, as I said, I want to look even further ahead. 2024, getting a lot of attention this week. There was that New York Times story about the whispers growing louder. I talked about it on special report last night with Brett Baer. My answer, Fox News blasted it out on their official channels on social. So I've gotten a lot of feedback about it. 
I don't think Joe Biden's going to run again. I just don't. I don't think he can physically or mentally. I think that he might want to, but I think ultimately two years on from now, it's just not something he's going to be up for. But then I also look at the alternatives and I think, okay, who else do they have? And if it's going to be Trump again, do they really want to stray away from Joe Biden, who's already beaten him? I don't know. I mean, the cacophony is no longer just limited to liberals who are anxious talking over drinks. You're hearing you know, quotes in major newspapers and on the air about some of this stuff. They're worried about his ability to lead the party and go through a very taxing process in 2024. Do you have a sense of what he might or might not do? Do you have a preference as a Democrat? Okay. So my expectation is that the president will one will run if he is healthy enough to. And he said, you know, in typical Biden fashion, you know, God willing, but he will be 82 years old. And there's a whole other show that we could have about whether there should be some sort of age limit on when people can be representatives, because there there must be some younger folks around. And that's for both sides of the aisle. Um, I think that in terms of what's going on with the bench right now, Kamala Harris is not popular, but leading the pack. Um, but there's a huge group that wants somebody else. And we did have 22 people, I think, running for the primary um, for 2020, and everyone chose Joe Biden. So I think that this is going to be an exceptionally difficult selection process, certainly mm-hmm. if Biden doesn't run, um, but that the Whisper campaign, if he is going to run, is going to continue, it's going to get louder, and there will probably be more people who are willing to use their name um, yep. in terms of discussing what they feel are going to be his shortcomings. Yeah, probably after the midterms will be my guess on that, but it will be a long, excruciating discussion on your side of the aisle while Republicans have their own discussion about looking backwards and forwards and all of that. Jesse Tarloff, Fox News contributor, co-host of The Five, head of research at Bustle. Jesse, always enjoy it. Thank you. Thank you so much. And we'll be right back after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Welcome back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Appreciate you being here. GuyBensonShow.com. Well, something that we've addressed a few different times on this show is a critique, I think a valid one, of a bunch of American companies, including Disney and other Hollywood studios, for their abject, embarrassing kowtowing to China, where the Chinese censors will say, we want X, Y, and Z out of your movie, and... In the case of Hollywood studios, over and over again, they have said absolutely no problem. Even when China has said we don't want same-sex couples or relationships depicted, i.e. don't say gay, actual don't say gay, unlike the whole controversy in Florida, you've had Hollywood salute. Yes, sir, we won't say gay. We want to make that sweet Chinese cash in that market. And the capitulations happen across the board with a lot of corporations And we think it's terrible. And we will continue to speak out on it. And by the way, just so we're intellectually honest, I think there's this whole Gulf controversy right now with Saudi Arabia, which is an authoritarian regime that has huge human rights violations. And you're seeing some high-profile golfers going and taking giant mountains of money from the Saudis to participate in this new golf league that competes with the PGA. And if we're going to be critical of Western figures, individuals, institutions, corporations that do this stuff with China, I think we want to also call out this on the Saudi side of things. 
And it's funny to see a lot of people who are all energized about the China hypocrisy not talking about Saudi. And then a lot of people on the left who are muted on China focusing on the Saudi thing instead. I think we should try to be even-handed and intellectually consistent across the board. That's what we're going to try to do here. And even though I've been extremely critical of Hollywood and other entities on this subject, when they start to do things better, if they improve, I want to incentivize that. And I want to praise them for doing the right thing. So, for example, Disney and Pixar has this movie Lightyear coming out, which is about Buzz Lightyear. I guess it's a prequel, either a prequel or a sequel to the Toy Story franchise based on that one character. And there is a same-sex couple in the movie. And there have been a number of countries saying, well, if that's in there, we're not going to play the movie in our country. And Disney and Pixar has said too bad. And I also think some conservatives saying, oh, there shouldn't be any of that in a kid's movie. I think just the existence of gay people should not offend you. We exist. Right. I don't, I don't think that that counts as part of some sort of insidious agenda. There's plenty of stuff to be concerned about on that front. This, in my book, is not one of them. So we know that there are 14 countries, primarily in the Middle East and Asia, saying Lightyear will not play in those countries because of this reason. Reuters reporting that authorities in China had asked for cuts to that movie for that reason. And Disney declined to make the cuts. And therefore, it is likely that China will not allow this movie to premiere on their soil for their citizens. We talked about Top Gun, the reboot the other day, the long-awaited sequel, 35 or so years in the making. China wanted a few changes to that as well. They wanted the Taiwanese flag, a patch of that flag and the Japanese flag taken off of a, an iconic jacket. And it seemed like the studio might do it. And then ultimately they said, no, it stayed in the movie. They defied China, and it's been a runaway success, box office smash, setting records. Hopefully that is positive reinforcement for doing the right thing. Do not let the Chinese Communist Party and their censors dictate what American companies across the board do or believe. And if you're going to cave, you deserve all the criticism that you get. If you're going to start standing up, then good, and we'll be the first ones to bring it up and pat you on the back. Baby steps in the right direction. We love to see it. The Guy Benson Show will break and come right back. Final hour of the show coming up. U.S. Senator Dan Sullivan, Alaska, joins us when we return. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It is the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show, our final hour of three on the program every day between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern. It's the 5 to 6 p.m. hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, our friends. Absolutely delicious, and it is really growing. It's just taking the country by storm. It's really good. That's why, especially when it's hot outside in these spring and now summer months. TheLongDrink.com is that website. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly, 21 plus only. 
and our website here at the show. You can go there even if you're under 21. We encourage it. GuyBensonShow.com. That's GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast free every day. Also, we're on social, Twitter and Instagram, at Guy Benson Show. Joining us now is U.S. Senator Dan Sullivan, a Republican from Alaska and Senator. It is great to have you back here on the show. Hey, Guy. Great to be on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to have you, especially because I have played some audio of you on the show in recent weeks because you had that somewhat viral exchange with a senior member of the Biden administration talking about energy, where you just laid out some of the attacks and assaults on U.S. domestic energy production that the administration had been engaged in just within the last month or so, not even over the course of the presidency or dating back to the campaign or even the Obama administration for eight years. And you just went point by point. And I think it was awfully difficult to rebut the points that you were making. What have you heard from either the administration or from Democrats on the other side of the aisle? Do they have a response to that indictment that you laid out? Or is it just sort of crickets? No, it's crickets. And um, and look, it's this has been their day one approach and they don't even hide it which is why it's been crickets. You saw I had the Secretary of Energy in front of the Armed Services Committee, and I said, you know, Madam Secretary, with all due respect, the president keeps saying he's trying to do as much as he can to alleviate these crushing energy prices on American working families, spiking energy costs that are rippling through the whole economy. And then she said in the hearing, we're doing all we can to increase energy production. And I said, Respectfully, Madam Secretary, that's just not true. It's not even remotely true. And in the heck, in the last three weeks, you completely took half of the National Petroleum Reserve of Alaska off the table. That's the biggest, most prolific energy basin guy probably in the world, in the world, right? That's up in the north slope of Alaska. Half of it, they said, nope, no one can explore or do anything there. Then they canceled the Cook Inlet lease sale. That's another big oil and gas basin in Alaska. They just canceled it. And then they undertook these regulations, these new regulations, NEPA regulations from the White House that were clearly intended, everybody knows it, it's not even a secret, meant to make it harder to uh, build energy infrastructure like pipelines or LNG facilities. That was done in the last five weeks three weeks when I had talked to the secretary. So, mm-hmm. no, they had no answer. And um, it's just this ongoing saga where the president continues to try to blame everybody. You may have seen, he just gave a speech recently blaming Putin on the energy price hikes. Well, he does that every day, right? He goes day with Putin every day. And it's hard to refute it because what I said is true, and the American people know it. And that's why, um, you know, they're trying to lay the blame somewhere else. We saw the president finally gave an interview, and it was to Jimmy Kimmel last week, this Democratic partisan and part-time comedian. He went on that show. It's the first interview the president has done since February the 10th. He still hasn't done one in that time frame with an actual journalist or news person. But the issue of oil and gas prices came up, and Biden was trying to blame the oil companies. And the line that they give over and over again from the White House is, oh, the oil companies are just greedy. They have all this land that they could drill on. They just don't want to, and they just want to increase their profits and price gouge. That's I'm, I'm sort of distilling it down to a very short soundbite there, but that's the essence of what they are arguing. 
I don't think many people are buying it, but you study this stuff very carefully because of your portfolio, where you're from. And I just wonder, like, how much reality is there in that excuse? Are the oil companies just refusing to explore land for kicks? Yeah, here, here's kind of – here's what they've been doing. And, and again, the, these are the facts. From day one – they have sought to either slow down or just stop the production of American energy. We see this in Alaska all the time, but it's, it's much broader than Alaska. And this is on federal lands. This is in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, you saw day one, President Biden said the ANWR legislation that we got during the Trump administration, working with the Republican Senate uh, to mandate two lease sales on ANWR. We've been trying to do this for 40 years. President came out on the first day of his administration and said, we're not going to do that. Well, Mr. President, with all due respect, that's a law now. Your job under the Constitution is to faithfully execute the law. So that's number one. Second, they've made it much harder to build and permit infrastructure, energy infrastructure that actually moves energy, natural like gas, that's oil. That's too, right? Think, exactly. Think Keystone XL. Uh, we would probably have about 800,000 barrels a day by now flowing um, from Canada. Our country needs it desperately had the president not canceled Keystone XL day one. Um, but they've done it uh, across the board on energy infrastructure. And just look at the FERC put out rules uh, that Joe Manchin called all the FERC commissioners in front of his Energy and Natural Resources Committee about two months ago. I actually went to the hearing, even though I'm not on that committee, just berating them, saying, your job is actually move natural gas, not to cr stop it. This new NEPA rule I just mentioned from four weeks ago, that's all about making it harder to move energy with American infrastructure. And then, and this has something to do with the bill I introduced and had a hearing on recently, just today, actually, this morning, in front of the banking committee, they, they've gone and strong-armed American financial institutions not to invest in American energy projects, especially, by the way, in Alaska. You may have seen all these Wall Street banks make these big pronouncements, we're not going to invest in America's Arctic for energy. Well, that's my state. And trust me, I call all these CEOs when they make these announcements. I actually have a meeting with one in a, about an hour in my office saying, wait, let me get this straight. You're blackballing American workers in my state who produce a product we all need, oil and gas, for America, and yet you have no problem investing in the Chinese Communist Party's economy? Right. I mean, right. I'm, meeting with the, I'm meeting with the head of AIG here in a couple hours. I mean, those guys have been propping up the Chinese Communist Party for decades. And these guys five weeks ago announced we're not going to invest in the America's Arctic or do any insurance for companies that do so. I mean, this is outrageous. And finally, when the Biden administration realizes, holy cow, these policies are really restricting the production of American energy and driving up energy prices, what do they do? They don't go to Alaska saying, hey, guys, you can drill more. You have the highest standards uh, on drilling. Saudi Arabia, right? They announced that today. They're going and begging dictators, Venezuela, Iran, those great terrorists in Iran, uh, Saudi Arabia, all these wonderful democratic countries, hmm. they're begging them for more oil production while ignoring American workers, American states with, by the way, guy, the highest environmental standards in the world. There's no place on the planet that has higher standards 
on production and exploration than the great state of Alaska. They don't care. I just and don't understand just, how they can even reconcile that in their minds, how they can justify that to themselves, because we need the oil. And as you say, we're going now hat in hand all over the world to bad places with some bad or shady folks saying, please, we need your help while handcuffing our own production for a political agenda. And that's my next question. We keep hearing this from the president and his defenders like he's some sort of innocent bystander with all these things happening that are just so unlucky with Vladimir Putin and all these confluence of events. It's just so unfair. And he has nothing to do with it. He has so little power over any of it. And I think a lot of that's a cop out. There's some truth to it, but mostly it's a cop out. The other part of it, Senator, is this is his agenda. This is what he wanted. This is what he's been talking about. It's what Democrats and progressives have been promising for a long time. Here's just a little montage of Joe Biden, then a candidate for president, trying to win the presidency, trying to win the nomination of his party in 2020. And here's just a few things that he said on this front in Cut 24. No more drilling on federal lands. No more drilling, including offshore. No ability for the oil industry to continue to drill, period. I guarantee you. We're going to end fossil fuel. What about, say, stopping fracking and stopping yeah. pipeline infrastructure? Yeah. Exactly. And, 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 and... No more, no new fracking. We are going to get rid of fossil fuels. I've argued against any more oil drilling or gas drilling on federal lands. No one's going to build a coal-fired plant again, and we're going to get rid of the ones we have now. Have a transition from the oil industry, yes. Would you be willing to sacrifice some of that growth? even knowing potentially that it could displace thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of blue-collar workers in the interest of transitioning to that greener economy? The answer is yes. Senator, this stuff is happening. It's acute. It's extremely painful for the American people. And they're trying to blame it on Putin and everyone else. Isn't this the vision coming real? Isn't this the dream coming true? Guy, I I couldn't agree with you more. And by the way, that's a great montage. I want to make sure I get that after the show because it's really important for your listeners, actually for all Americans, to be reminded of what this president campaigned on. And I agree 100%. This was their vision. And, um, you know, when you hear the president just a couple weeks ago saying, well, we're going through this, I forgot what he called it, remarkable transition. Incredible transition. Um, Incredible. There you go. And then... Look, you know, um, two of the people that I don't have a lot of respect for who are driving this, John Kerry and Gina McCarthy, two very smug, arrogant people disconnected to middle class and working families completely. They have been saying, they have been saying, Gina McCarthy has been saying that the high energy prices will, quote, accelerate our move to renewables. Okay. That is their plan, and I agree yeah, it's a with feature. you. Just, a feature, not a bug, just, is what it sounds like there, Senator. We have 30 seconds left. Very quickly, this framework in the Senate on guns and mental health and school security, 10 Republicans, of your, some of your colleagues, have signed on to it. There's no bill yet. Are you open to it? Are you wait and see? What's your initial position or posture? I'm waiting to see the legislation, the actual language, uh, I was not part of the framework group that was focused on the issues of school safety and mental health uh, and gun regulations. Uh, you know, Alaska in this regard is very unique. Uh, we have uh, a very strong sense of the Second Amendment because we need firearms. Thousands of my constituents need firearms for food. No kidding. 
subsistence food to eat and for protection. And I'm talking about not just personal safety in your home, but when you're out walking around Alaska or in the rural areas, uh, you're not always the top of the food chain. All right, fair enough. So unique situation in Alaska, and you'll be looking at the details once there is legislative text. U.S. Senator Dan Sullivan, Republican of Alaska, our guest here on The Guy Benson Show. Senator, thanks for your time. Guy, thank you very much. Keep up the great work. And we will be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. We are back. It is the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show, and it's time for Woke Tales. This via Jewish Insider, just amazing. Ben and Jerry's, the ice cream company, run by these woke, aging hippies. Ben and Jerry's requiring new employees to watch lectures on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So new hires at the ice cream company are now required to watch four video lectures featuring activists discussing the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as part of their onboarding, their orientation, Jewish Insider has learned. This is an ice cream company. It's like, okay, 1 p.m., we're going to learn the flavors. 2 p.m., we're going to debate the intifada. And then finally at 8 p.m., when we're done with that, we will have instruction and demonstration on how to properly scoop the product. Like, I'm only half-joking. The videos are part of what the ice cream company dubbed Scooper Series Social Mission to address racism in the United States and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And obviously they are very much weighing in on one side of this conflict. In fact, one of the people featured in one of these videos is a guy called Omar Shakir, who's part of the anti-Semitic BDS movement, which is targeting the only tiny Jewish state in the world. He was expelled from Israel in 2019 because of that work that he was doing. You might remember that last year, under pressure from left-wing activists, Ben and Jerry's announced that they were going to stop selling products in what they call, quote, occupied Palestinian territories. And I've talked about this before. I like Ben and Jerry's ice cream. I like Americone Dream. I like Pistachio Pistachio. I like Cherry Garcia. It's good ice cream, although Jenny's is making a hard play for me right now, as many of you might recall from our birthday show back in March. But I buy the ice cream not because I agree with the agenda or the mindset or the politics of the founders, but because I like good ice cream and I try not to live my life in a politicized way. I will say it gets harder when these guys just want to politicize everything about their company. And if you are caving to anti-Israel, which is often, not always, synonymous with anti-Semitic activists and people who are obsessed with this issue – and virulently anti-Israel and sympathetic to not just the Palestinian cause, but the Palestinian authorities and forms of government who are either terrorists themselves or who finance terrorism. Like, I really do have a problem with that. So Ben and Jerry's announced last year that they were going to stop selling their ice creams in occupied Palestinian territory as a protest or something. And that decision last summer set off a flurry of lawsuits, including from the company's Israeli manufacturer and divestment by numerous United States jurisdictions, including the state of New Jersey, Illinois, Florida. 
divesting state funds from Unilever, which is Ben and Jerry's parent company. And just last week in New York, Governor Kathy Hochul gave that parent company a final warning before New York also divests $111 million in shares from the conglomerate. This is all in the Jewish Insider story. So I guess Ben and Jerry specifically are so committed to the left-wing universe that they are willing to not only take these financial hits and on principle, I guess, not sell their delicious ice cream to Palestinian people. I mean, that's that's the upshot of this. They're still selling in Israel, just not the so-called occupied territories. And now, I guess, to, I'm sure, appease some of these shouters, there's a multi-part series of indoctrination videos that you have to watch if you just want to work at the company that produces ice cream. And I've seen a debate already breaking out on social media about whether or not this is even legal. Could this open them up to viewpoint discrimination lawsuits? That could be fun. So once again, the left insists on politicizing everything. And seemingly nothing is exempt. Nothing is safe, including ice cream. And that's Woke Tales. Woke Tales. The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour resumes right after this. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It's the Happy Hour here on the Guy Benson Show. And earlier in the program, in our first hour, we caught up with Congressman Tony Gonzalez, a Republican of Texas in the 23rd Congressional District of the Lone Star State. His district, of course, includes Uvalde, Texas. A lot to discuss with the congressman on a host of topics. Here's part of that discussion. I'm not saying that the country has moved on from Uvalde. We haven't. It is still very much a top-of-mind issue. I know there's some policy ideas being floated now that I'll get to in a moment. But I think that it has to be the case that on the ground in that community, the shock at some point starts to wear off and some other kind of grieving begins. What are you hearing? What are you seeing in Uvalde? Yeah, no, I literally talked to uh, a father of one of the uh, victims about two hours ago, and I and I speak to the I speak with uh, people on the ground every single day, and and you know he's just trying he's asking me you know everyday questions of how to keep going you know uh, the other day this was about social a social security issue, uh, but the other day you know an, another father actually reaches out as well, and he goes hey Tony I'm I'm staying in a hotel. It's, this was Tuesday, and, uh, you know, I only have enough money to stay here till Saturday. I can't work. I can't do these things. I, I say that to go, yes, the, maybe the rest of the country may have moved on and, and is taught, and using this moment to have a political debate. I, I get all that. But in my district, in the Uvalde, and it's not only Uvalde, it's the entire region, because Uvalde is really the big city, the big town in that whole area. There's, you know, uh, nine counties around it that feed into it. We, we're just trying to pick up the pieces and get our lives back together. And it's going to be this way for a while. A, a large part of that, too, is, is mental health. I mean, a lot of people are in very bad spots. So I, I'm regularly checking in with my folks to make sure everyone's okay. I do want to ask you about the sentiment there when it comes to some of the law enforcement officials who responded that day. And from a distance, reading some of these accounts in the local press and the national press about what did not happen, how long the delays were, 
the excuses for those delays, uh, some of which have been disproven or exposed as false, and some of the misinformation and the changing story that was presented to the public over the course of days, it's extremely angering for someone like me. I'm wondering how people there are processing that. I mean, I don't want to necessarily scapegoat any one person. I think there were a lot of failures. But this district police chief who was in charge and made the call not to go in for the better part of an hour, he still has that position. He just got sworn in as a local official because he had won an election a few months ago. How is that sustainable? I would imagine there are a lot of people demanding answers, accountability, consequences. You know what? The the, the media, and I'll just use that as a broad term, has largely demonized many of these first responders. Uh, And and I'll tell you, it's the furthest thing from the truth. Were there a lot of mistakes made? A hundred percent. Do we need to know exactly what those mistakes were? Yes. And we need to learn from them. And we need to make sure that that we we correct those those errors to make sure that our response time is, is much different than what it was. But I'll tell you, I mean, one, the gunman was, was initially engaged by Lieutenant Javier Pena three minutes after he entered the school. You know, sadly, that's three minutes too late. He had, he had already killed many innocent people by that point. And I'll also say what, what people don't realize is a lot, of those, a lot of those folks that were in that hallway wanted to get in that room as quickly as possible. It was a steel door. There were two steel doors. They were locked. They didn't have the tool to either pry it open like a can or open the door. And, and, and their own children were, in, in some cases, their own children were in that room. My full interview with Congressman Tony Gonzalez, Republican Texas, available online at GuyBensonShow.com, also part of the free podcast, the whole show, every day, on demand, for free. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, a new study about millennial men and insecurities that many of us apparently have. We will discuss whether or not it's true next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Tuesday. It's the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. Podcast free every day on demand. You can also go to FoxNewsPodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Guy Benson Show. Well, this is an interesting study about my demographic, millennial men. Study shows that four out of five, so roughly 80% of millennial men, are insecure about their looks, their physical appearance. And apparently a lot of this insecurity is rooted in, no pun intended, their hair or our hair. Losing hair, gray hair in particular, half of men in this demographic currently have some gray hair, and about as many are self-conscious about it. This is a survey of 2,000 adult men. They've surveyed all generations. But I guess millennials, people roughly my age, I think it's born in 1980 to born in 1996, roughly, are the millennials. And I guess we are uniquely on the male side of things. This is only dudes that they poll. This is not women. 
we are uniquely concerned about our physical appearance. So I have a few theories on this, and then we'll bring in Dan, who is a fellow millennial man on this, before we get to others here on the team who fall in different demographics. I think, number one, it makes sense that people in our age group, men and women, are disproportionately concerned or obsessed or fixated on physical appearance because we're the first generation that has sort of been the selfie generation with social media, where appearance and posting images of yourself is king and prized and almost expected de rigueur. So there's just a a higher premium put on that, not just for famous people or prominent people, but just for average people. So as we start to age, which we are, I'm in my last year of my mid-30s, is what I'm calling it, at 37. As we start to age and you start to see changes in yourself, whether your body isn't looking the same, your hair's looking different, some wrinkles are appearing, there's a lot of people who get very concerned about that because we are right in that age group as well. Setting aside the social media aspect, the Zoomers are too young generally to start to see signs of aging. And then Gen Xers and beyond have been aging for a while, so they're kind of maybe used to it or at peace with the process, whereas millennials are right on that cusp where you start to go from definitely looking young to not so much anymore. So it might be more at the forefront of your mind. This is just me giving my analysis and perhaps revealing some of my own insecurities or at least my thought processes about these things. And definitely gray hair would be one of them. Like I am starting to sprout a few more grays here or there, especially kind of near my temples, in my sideburn area. I'm seeing more gray or white hairs appearing. And the thing is, number one, coloring your hair is very easy. Number two, I think a lot of guys actually look pretty good with the salt and pepper look. And number three, I am less concerned about gray hair than losing hair. I would rather go gray than lose my hair. That's just like my overall preference. And there's things that you can do about both of those. You can also go to the gym. You can go on diets. You can go have work done. I'm actually amazed the number of people my age and younger getting work done. Not just fillers, but other things as well. Botox and all this stuff. I don't think there's really all that much of a taboo against that stuff anymore. I just, I've never done that. I don't, I've always looked a little bit young for my age, which was very annoying when I was younger because I wanted to be taken more seriously. Now it's more of a blessing as I'm getting older, but it has never occurred to me to go get injections in my forehead or something. But, I mean, I work in a visual medium. I'm on television. I get it. I'm not throwing stones at anyone here. I'm not ruling anything out for myself. I just think that at least the millennial piece of this, it just makes sense for those two reasons. Because of where we are in life, that age range, and then also the social media component and the extra emphasis on appearance and how many people can see how you look all the time. If you're engaged on these types of platforms, which most of us are, or at least many, many of us are. 
Now, producer Christine, on our call earlier today when this topic came up, you expressed surprise, almost astonishment that any men would care about their looks at all. 100 percent. I was shocked by this study. I really my husband doesn't really ever mention anything like how do I look? What do I look? You know, whatever he's wearing, like there's no questioning of how he looks. So I, for some reason, just assumed that was all men. And let me add one thing that is so unfair. Men get so much better looking with age, like hands down. Women, it just goes pretty much downhill at a certain age. I'm not there yet, just so you know. But so I'm actually surprised. Like, you guys, you're lucky. The older you get, the better looking you're going to be. I know there are some people who say that and believe that, that men age gracefully and they become more debonair and handsome as they get older. That's true, certainly, of some men. I think it's also a matter of personal taste. But I think there's a lot of us who would argue, actually, no, there are downsides in terms of physical appearance as we age. And, Christy, do you not really know any men or certainly any gay men? Like, you don't no. think men are concerned about their appearance? You've never met a gay man in your life, obviously. No, I, I of course I have. I just, I really didn't. I thought, like, men just get up, take a shower, put the clothes on, and that's it. Never think about it again. Maybe get a haircut every couple weeks. That's it. No. No, I, mean, I, I, think, I think maybe we're more low-key about it, but... I don't know. I think I think I speak for men everywhere, not every man, but men everywhere that a lot of us, of course, you look in the mirror and you're looking at you and you're looking at flaws and, ooh, do I like that? What's that? I think that's human, not specifically male or female. Dan, back me up here as a fellow millennial male. So I totally agree with you. I'm in the mindset of being very insecure about looks because of w when we grew up and, you know, the early adopters of the selfie with Facebook coming out, Instagram. And as I get older, I got to agree, I am getting much more worried about getting grays. I see them in my beard sometimes. But, you know, it is it is on the forefront of my mind very much. And I am worried about losing my hair more than the grays because my significant other, you know, she can't wait till I go gray. She loves that look, like Christine was saying. So, um, yeah, I'm very much uh, agree with you in that. So are you then not going to walk down to your local CVS and get some just for men? <laughs> no. Because she wants you to be gray. I'm going to let the salt and pepper get in there. Um, you know, that's why I'm growing my hair out now because, you know, while I can – so we'll see if that if my hair lasts that long. Ah. But with the uh, with the with the gray, I don't mind at all. All right. So Dan and I are millennials. Quiet Wyatt is a Zoomer, Gen Z. We'll get to him in a second. Of course, producer Christine is our resident boomer. She is not silent generation because there's nothing silent about her. But I think Christine, right? You were you're a boomer. No, no, I'm not. I'm a millennial. You are not a millennial. Yes, I am. I was born in 1981. Mm, I think you're an Xer at best. And we know that the Soviets did some things on the fake birth certificate when you were sent over here as a spy. So I, I can't really take any of that seriously. I think you're an Xer at best. But let's just leave that alone for a moment and bring mm -hmm. in Quiet Wyatt, who is male, young, not a millennial. Wyatt, when you talk to people your own age, if you ever do, 
It's like, say, fellow young people, except you actually are. Can I read you an excerpt from today's excellent Wall Street Journal editorial? May I offer you a walk on the beach at 4.30 a.m.? And we can talk about life. But if you ever talk to people your age, Wyatt, is this a topic at all, like how people look? Or are you guys all too young and good-looking to be worried about the aging process yet? Yeah, I I think it's just kind of one of those things where people just don't care. I think my age is just – I mean I at least dress for success. But I think other than that, most people just embrace themselves and and just go with it. You know, I don't think – I mean I'm not really that worried about aging. So I don't think anyone my age is. At what point would you start to get concerned? If you start losing some hair, if you start seeing some grays, would your mindset start to change? I guess, yeah, but I, I'm I'm hoping that doesn't happen for a few more years. Well, you're right? you're 21, right? 21, turning 22 next week. Oh so boy, getting older. We were going to celebrate your birthday on the show, but you're going to be gone, right? You're on vacation next week. Yes. Where are you going to be, Wyatt? Going to Disney World. I there it there it is, there it is, and it's the happiest place on earth, and no one will judge you for your looks down at Disney. All right, Christine, last word to you on this, because I feel like you're learning. Maybe you're getting educated by the men in your life right now, because Bobby, maybe Bobby is the rare man who really doesn't care. Maybe he just doesn't talk about it very much to you. I just think, do you, let, let me put it in the frame of a question. Do you think you might be engaged in some sexist stereotypes to assume that it's just women who obsess over their looks and men don't care because you have a couple dudes here just telling you maybe it's not a fixation but it's definitely something that we think about so what i've just realized and i'm sure you would agree with me um women mainly me when there is a problem with anything looks why anything i tell everybody maybe men are worried about their looks but they just don't broadcast it like i would you know, like if I got Botox, you guys would be like the first to know. I'd probably be sending you pictures while I was getting it done. Um, by the way, do men get Botox? Oh, yeah. Yep. You, Fillers, you know, you Botox. Know somebody... No. Oh, yeah. I know guys younger than I am, in some cases substantially younger than I am, getting preemptive Botox. They say they're doctors or whoever these people are tell them if you do it early and you start early you can prevent aging preemptively and i don't know maybe that's true maybe it's not but you've got some guys in their 20s doing this kind of stuff yeah i know i'm telling you men absolutely think about these things especially in a society that prizes beauty and youth i think people want to hang on to that what was kim kardashian's quote the other day She said she would do anything to remain looking young. I believe she said she would eat human feces every day if that's what it took. Can we fact check that? I'm pretty sure I saw that quote from her. And I think if you polled millennials, would you do that every day if you could look years younger for a much longer period of time? I think you might get quite a few takers, like a shocking number of takers. Are you kidding? Yeah. No, and I say that. I'm, I'm not being sarcastic. I'm smiling. You might even call it an S-eating grin on my face. <laughs> we got to go. We got to go. Back here tomorrow on The Guy Benson Show. Same time, same place. Thanks for listening.
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.